Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the gathering of Rivertown Church. I, um, I count it a privilege to be here always and to dive into the Word of God with the family here at Rivertown. And so um, that's what we're going to do this morning. That's what we intend to do, right, is to drink deeply from the well of Christ by looking intently at His Word and letting it transform us and letting the implanted Word do the work that it was designed to do, and that is to speak to our hearts, our souls, and our minds, and to transform us into the image of the living Christ. And so I hope you came ready for that, and I hope and I pray that that's the impetus every day, that we would seek Him while He may be found, that we would draw near to Him, that He would draw near to us. And so this, though a highlight for us, because it's a collective pursuit, a collective worship, right, it's corporate, I, I hope it's not the only time of the week that we're doing this, right, that you are being filled with the knowledge of God in Christ through His Word, day in and day out. Don't let this be a booster shot <laughs> to get through the days till next Sunday, but rather let this be a corporate experience of what you're already doing individually in seeking the Lord. And so we're continuing today in our Genesis series, and we're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 31. Um, to give you a brief recap, if you're using a Genesis journal, that's page 138, um, page 138. We're going to be going through the whole chapter. Um, I don't think I'll be reading the whole thing, but um, we will be touching on each scene as we make our way through it. But to give you a, a brief uh, recap of what we've seen so far, last week uh, in chapter 30, we, we saw that Jacob had worked for Laban, his father-in-law, for uh, 14 years. And at 14 years, uh, because he wanted Rachel initially, and Leah was given to him as a wife instead, Leah, uh, Rachel's sister, and he made another agreement with Laban saying, hey, give me Rachel now, and then I'll work another seven years. And so 14 years total. At the end of that 14 years, Laban says, you know, you've been such a blessing to me in my home, and you've been taking care of all this stuff, and I, I don't really want to let you leave yet. What, you know, what, what are wages between us? So how about another six years, and then you'll be free to go. And... As a part of that agreement, we saw a, really a, a, a non, or a verbal agreement, if you will, that whatever goats and sheep of the flock, uh, whichever of those end up spotted and speckled and striped, you'll keep, which is a bad deal for Jacob. And all of the pure uh, coated ones will remain in my household. And so by the providence of God... There seems to be some weird folk lore associated with it. We're not quite sure what Jacob was doing with some sticks. Uh, but through the providence of God, Jacob's herd grew. And this is where now we pick up in chapter 31. And so um, this, there's three themes that we're going to touch on. And they're going to be our, our main points for the sermon today. The first would be the continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, second theme would be the fear of Isaac. The fear of Isaac. Uh, twice, Jacob calls the Lord the fear of Isaac, Isaac being his father. 
And it's the only place in all of the scriptures we see that term, the fear of Isaac. And so it's important. I'm going to take note. And then our second theme would be the land of sojourning. And that's a theme that has started with the patriarch Abraham and has continued down the line through his sons and his sons, his son and his son's son. Um, so read with me now chapter 31, but let's fir- first let's pray. <clears throat> Father, would you be magnified today? I pray that you would speak to our hearts through your word, that your spirit would have rule and reign in our hearts and in our minds, and that we would uh, not be distracted by earthly temporal things, but that we would set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated. But I pray that you would give us spiritual insight, Lord, ears to hear, eyes to see, that we may exult in you and magnify your name today. Would you please be magnified in us and then also magnified through us as your people. We are your people for your possession. Please speak to us today. In the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Chapter 31 starts. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. Talking about the herd. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that made it with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, And return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods, and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates. And set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. So this marks our first theme. The covenant continues. 
we see the continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. And by title, it was obviously the covenant struck with Abraham two generations ago. And so we're going to do a brief history real quick uh, of that covenant. It first appears in Genesis 12, and I'm going to paraphrase some, uh, or I'm going to give some quotes and some paraphrases from those covenants because I want you to see the themes. I'm just going to list them quickly. In Genesis 12, the Lord tells Abraham, I will make you a nation. I will bless you, make you great, and make you a blessing. I will bless those who curse you and curse those who curse you. To your offspring, I will give this land. In Genesis 15, again, the Lord says to Abraham, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Look to the stars, so shall your offspring be. And it says in the text, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then in Genesis 17, Abraham's called the Abraham's told he'll be the father of a multitude of nations, a multitude of nations, that the establishment of his covenant with his offspring would continue, and it would be an everlasting covenant. He's told that the land of Canaan would be an everlasting possession, and the Lord says, I will be their God, meaning his descendants, I will be their God. To Isaac, Abraham's son, the son of promise, in Genesis 26 the Lord calls Isaac and says, sojourn in this land. I will be with you. Take note of that. I will be with you and I will bless you. I will give you these lands and establish the oath I swore to Abraham. I will multiply your offspring as the stars. In your offspring, the nations will be blessed. Okay, it's clear. It's the continuation of the covenant struck with his father Abraham is now to Isaac. And then we get to Jacob. In Genesis 28, there's the reaffirmation of the land and the multitude of the offspring. Okay, the Lord reaffirms that. And then he says this, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. It's interesting. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. But what did he promise him? That he would establish an everlasting covenant with his offspring. The covenant's everlasting. Therefore, the Lord will never leave him. Did you see that? Meaning, I, I won't go anywhere because I'm not going to go until it's accomplished, but it's everlasting. So it's another way of saying, I will be with you forever. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you, as the Lord Jesus says to us. And then in Genesis 31, this chapter, we saw at the very beginning Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. The repetition is purposeful. And actually, we see a, a progression of the covenant. Because Abraham is not given the promise, I will be with you. He's strictly told, go and do this, and Abraham went and did it. And then within the Abraham, within the, uh, the particular scenes with Abraham he's tested and we'll talk about that testing in a little bit in Genesis 22 with Isaac and it and the Lord says because I know you fear me because I know you fear me I'll uphold this covenant right because I know you fear me and it said his faith is counted to him as righteousness but Abraham's not given the specific line I will be with you he simply sees the Lord and says okay I'll go and do this but 
But I think as the story, as the drama unfolds, we also see more sin creep in, right? We, we see the, the unfolding of creation because we're still leaving further and further from the mark of the fall, right? And so sin is increasing. Sin is abounding all the more. And yet while sin is abounding, grace continues to abound all the more. And the covenant promises get a little more tangible. They get a little more real in a sense. The benefits thereof increase. And that's why with Isaac, who's the first to be told, I will be with you. Fear not, I am with you. And then Jacob, it says, I'm with you. I will not leave you. And that's important. We see sin creeping into the family line, right? We see the sin of Abraham. We see the sins of Isaac. And we see the, the incredible drama that is Jacob's household. Ben mentioned last week that it's like the, uh, you know, I forget, some kind of, you know, all-star family meets Jerry Springer, okay? Because the drama is that ridiculous. And yet, all the while, God's grace persists. And he expounds more and more on the covenant promises. And so Jacob then remembers in the midst of this, he remembers this covenant. In verse 7, he says, but God did not permit him to harm me, talking about Laban. He recalls all that the Lord had promised him. He recalls the covenant struck with his grandfather, struck with his father, and he recalls the covenant struck with him. And he recognizes all the while that God did not permit Laban to harm him. It was God. It was God. Jacob had acted a fool on several occasions. His wives didn't contribute to the well-being of his family. And yet all the while, God is gracious and merciful, and he prevents Laban from harming Jacob in a real way. And that's interesting. I, I think it's a, worth noting that Jacob is stuck with that man for 20 years. 20 years. <laughs> Some of us think being stuck with someone for a week is miserable. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever been on vacations with people that you realize, like, well, this isn't the best idea, <laughs> right? <laughs> or you are visiting friends in another state, and you're like, wow, I'm really a guest in their home right now, huh? But, but Jacob endured this affliction for 20 years because he believed the Lord. And it wasn't that he didn't seek to be removed and pray to the Lord, but he was reaffirmed by the Lord over and over again. And now the word of the Lord comes and says, go, go to the land of your kindred. And Jacob instantly knows, yes, this is the God of my fathers. I will go. I will go. And he tells, of, he, he bears testimony. He bears witness to what the Lord had done all the while in this last episode, this last scene of God demonstrating his sovereignty in causing the herd to become striped, spotted, and mottled, okay? Because we've seen in chapters before this that the Lord is the Lord of the womb, not just of those who bear image of God, us, but of all the earth. In Psalm 50, the psalmist says, you own the cattle on a thousand hills, it's just poetry for saying, it's all yours, Lord. It's all yours. 
And Jacob testifies to this. He says, the Lord caused my herd to increase. He caused it. He caused them to be born the way they were born. For his purposes and for my good. And he tells his wives, look, I'm being called back to the land of my fathers. This covenant-keeping God has called me. It's time to go. So Jacob leaves. He leaves. And I want to, this is not the, the, the whole point of the text, but I do want to really just draw your attention to, to two things. First is a note to the men in the room, particularly the husbands. You are the leaders of your home. And it is God's design for you, and it has been since the beginning of time. You are the leader of your home. You see the call of the patriarchs, not the call of the matriarchs. And that's purposeful. It's intentional. Because God designed it that way. For the, a man to leave his father and his mother and to be joined to his wife. And the two would be one. But that the man would be head of that household. And so the Lord speaks to Jacob. He speaks to Jacob. But he also leads his wives because he says, this is what the Lord told me. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't fear their opinion. But he says, look, this is what the Lord told me. And then a note to wives in the room. Look, don't prohibit or inhibit your husband from leading as he ought. We have an unfortunate situation in the West right now. If statistics are true, and I believe they are, generally speaking, women are far more interested in religion than men are. Uh, I think that that statistic is more right than wrong. And we know for a fact that there are more single moms who have an interest in Christ or maybe married spouses where the wife comes to belong and to seek the Lord with the family of faith and the husband stays home, okay? It's, I don't think we need statistics to prove this. We can just open our eyes. But listen, notice that Rachel and Leah were not argumentative, but they actually affirmed what Jacob was hearing from the Lord. And this is what they said, whatever God has said to you, do. Whatever God has said to you, do. And so, husband, if your wife is the only one hearing from the Lord in your household, and, and she's making household-sized decisions, then your marriage is upside down. Your marriage is upside down. And, and it's sin. But, but there's grace for you. Because what I'm not saying is that the Lord doesn't speak to women. Don't hear me wrong. Or that he doesn't first speak to the wife in a marriage. But I've seen time and time again when the Lord moves, the most godly examples I've seen where a woman first hears something, she waits and she prays that the Lord would speak to her husband. She doesn't assert herself to domineer her husband or to seek to usurp his spiritual authority in the home, but she waits and she prays. And she lets the Lord do what the Lord does, upholding his design for the created world and for the household. So just, just we see that in this example. Jacob has been a pathetic example of a man and his wives, terrible examples of, of women. And yet, in this example, in this example, J Jacob does what is right. The word of the Lord comes to him. 
he takes hold of it and he leads his wives accordingly. That's the example to follow. That's the example to follow. And so now we enter the second scene, which I call the fear of Isaac. Remember, they just left, but it says very specifically, Jacob tricked Laban by not telling him that he intended to flee. So verse 22, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? He, he means his household idols. Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. I'm going to pause right there. This seems to me, based on the language Jacob is using, it, it's, a, it's his version of a narrative that happened with his fathers. Though it happened with Abraham and Isaac with their wives concerning foreign leaders. If you remember, twice Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife. He lied to Pharaoh, and then he lies to Abimelech. And he says, they ask him, why did you do this thing? And he says, because I feared you for my life and that you would take away my wife. And then the same thing happens with Isaac, right? He, he says the same thing to Abimelech. He says, this is my sister. And same situation happens. And the narrative changes substantially with Jacob, his entire narrative. The parallels aren't quite as clear. And yet the sins of the father kind of remain. And the same language is used by Jacob. He says, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters away from me by force. And so, though the sin's not nearly as heinous, he still is operating from a place of fear. He's operating from a place of fear. And that is the detriment, that's his sin in this narrative, because the word given to his father was fear not, fear not, I am with you. The word given to his father Isaac, that who he then calls the Lord by that title, right? So it's not coincidence. It says fear not. In fact, there's, different, there's several different words in Hebrew, right, for fear. The one used as the title fear of Isaac, it's a, it's a noun. It means dread. We'll get to it. But this particular word, this afraid, it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a verb, to be, right? It's the same word 
told to Isaac to fear not, so do not fear. And Jacob says, I was afraid. I was afraid of you. In that same language, I thought you would take away your daughters. And so we see some of the former sins still creeping into the family of God. <laughs> Yet, the sin doesn't just stay with Jacob. Verse 32, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Remember, Rachel took these household idols out of her father's house. Why? We don't know, but I think we can speculate with confidence that she was not entirely trusting of the God of her husband and that there was still some attachment to the God of her father. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out to Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. She told her father that she was on her monthly menstruation cycle and that it would not be a good idea for her to get off the camel. She lied. She lied. The thread of deception remains in the family of God. And, and as a side note, I think we see sin multiplying sin. She first steals the idols. She first steals the idols because she's not quite as trusting and obedient and as faithful as that of her husband. She's attached to the God of her father. And we see this sin happen a lot with Israel as a nation. That's why the Lord says, do not marry foreign women because their gods will become your gods. And even though she's kindred, Laban, as we'll see later, worshiped the God of Nahor, which was Abraham's brother. And Abraham was a pagan when he was called by Yahweh. So I don't think there's any evidence that says he's worshiping Yahweh when he says the God of Nahor. So she grabs, and it's clear he has these idols in his house, right? So she grabs him, she hides him, and she's nervous because <laughs> Jacob is really saying, I will stand on this point. I did not take a thing from you that belonged to you. And so if she's caught, she would be shaming her husband. And more th so than that, more so than that, Jacob had invited Laban to prove him wrong. <laughs> He's staking it all. In his faith in the Lord would actually be questioned if they were found out. And so in this weird scene of both deception and providence, Jacob's rapport, his reputation is preserved, and he has no clue. He has no clue his wife had been unfaithful to the Lord and deceptive to her father, and to him, for that matter. But she lies. She says, hey, it's my time of the month. Don't, don't ask me to get off this camel. And so he passes over her. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. 
Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required of it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction in the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And here we have the first instance of this title, the fear of Isaac. The fear of Isaac. Jacob becomes angry and without Understandably so. He still has no knowledge of these household idols. And he makes his case before Laban. He makes his case. Jacob testifies that he had been kept completely by the God of his fathers. The fear of Isaac. Jacob rightly understands that God and God alone has kept him this entire time. And that the promise, the covenant promise struck to him, to his father and to his grandfather was still good. He understands that Though Jacob be a fool and be wrong, <laughs> the Lord is right. He's in no position, really, to, to um, defend himself. Jacob, the, decept- the deceiver, has been deceived. He has gotten a taste of his own medicine time and time again. His character has basically ruined the character of, of his wives. And we see that thread of deception continuing in their lineage Because sin, it begets sin. And yet, he's banking on the Lord. He's saying, he alone has kept me this entire time. I have been scourged by you, basically. I have been at my wit's end and my body's end serving you. But the Lord has kept me. And so he's testifying to God's goodness and his covenant-keeping ability. It reminds me of Psalm 116. The psalmist says, I said in my alarm, all men are liars. <laughs> you know, Jacob's basically saying, this is, this is, we're done here, right? You're a liar. I've been doing everything you've asked me to do. It's only God. He's the only reason I'm still here. I'm a liar even, <laughs> right? It's all been the hand of the Lord that has preserved me. And I want to focus in on why does he call the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac. What, what, what does that mean? And why that title? I think we have to look at this with a two-part answer. First, I want to look at what does it mean pertaining to God? Pertaining to God. Those, as I mentioned earlier, this word fear, uh, it can also be rendered dread. Okay, dread. It's a noun. It's not a verb. So in, an, in another way, in an, another way to put it, This God, the God of Abraham, he's fearful, he's dreadful, he's awful. Don't confuse 
awful with the modern sense. Uh, Western Eng uh, English, modern English has butchered the terms awful and awesome. They mean full of awe, weight, terror. So in that light, God is awful. He is dreadful. He strikes terror before men and women. The scriptures regularly testify that the Lord is both creator and judge. Listen to this in Psalm 76. This is a portion of it, verses 4 through 12. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment, to save all the humble of the earth, Selah, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around bring him gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. I hope you caught that. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The psalmist is literally saying, when God pours out his judgment on those deserving of eternal condemnation, it will glorify him. He will put on their wrath like a belt. And all the earth will say, glory be to God. In Philippians, Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. That means both friend and enemy will bow on the day to come. On that day, his enemies will finally be made his footstool, and even they will be proclaiming his glory. They will be exalting his name. They will not be his friends, but they cannot help but magnify his name because they will see him for the full weight, glory, and holiness that he has. He will be terrifying to them, and they will worship, and they will worship. This is the fear of Isaac. This is the fear of Isaac. This is the same God who called Abraham from the land of Ur and kept all his promises concerning him. And this is the same God who called Isaac and promised to be with him. I will be with you. I am the most terrifying being in the cosmos, and I will be with you. He has proven his might and fulfilled his promises time and time again. So that's part one. Now, now let's look at how this title pertains to Isaac. Why Isaac? Why not the fear of Abraham? Why Isaac? Isaac is the first covenant recipient to be promised, I will be with you. And that's striking because think about Isaac's life. Isaac witnessed the Lord telling his father, 
to strike him down. We often look at that or read that narrative and think, wow, the Lord was really testing Abraham. But what about Isaac in the midst of this? He was old enough to say, Father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham responds in something that seems a bit cryptic, the Lord will provide, son. And the whole while, Isaac's wondering, what animal are we going to slaughter on this mount right now? All the while, my father has been telling me, the Lord is sending us to the mount. We're going to worship. And he's there all along the way, thinking, huh, I wonder what, what it is. And then they get to the top of that mount. Isaac is bound. He is bound by his own father, knowing full well that God had asked his father to do it. He bound him. And Abraham grabs the knife. There's no question. There's no shadow of doubt in the mind of Isaac in that moment. I fully believe he was convinced that he's dying. And yet that angel steps in, the angel of the Lord and says, hey, stop. I see that you fear me. And then we see this spotless ram appear. But think about that. Think about that. That Isaac, as a, as a youth, experienced one of the most terrifying experiences I think any son could go through, any person for that matter, but particularly a son, knowing his father loved him, and yet his father was willing to kill him because God had asked him to. Isaac has every reason to fear the Lord in a natural sense, right? To, to really just be afraid. But yet it doesn't stop there. Thankfully, the Lord intervenes and he calls Isaac to himself. And that natural fear turns into a spiritual fear, a fear of worship. Because when God called Isaac, Isaac obeyed. He didn't run. He bore witness to the faithfulness of God towards his father Abraham and the faithfulness to him in sparing his life that day and providing a substitution. And so Isaac, in a sense greater than Abraham, I think fears the Lord in a, a sense that, that no other circumstance could produce. He fears him. And therefore, because of faith in that God, Isaac truly is the heir of Abraham, not just by blood, but by faith. So therefore, Jacob, who has witnessed the character and conduct of his father Isaac his whole life, and he witnessed Isaac's character, faith, and forthrightness in obeying the Lord in all things, in all steps along the way, Jacob rightly says, he is the fear of Isaac. This God is the fear of my father. And I have been held and kept by him. I have been held and kept by him. This fear, it ought to humble us. It ought to humble us. And we'll look at just a little bit how we hold it, that in light of the fear not, the command to fear not. But as we continue to our next section, the land of sojourning. Verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to him, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. 
But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me, this heap of witness and the pillar of witness that will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his grandfather and his daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Laban insists that he's still in the right and that both Jacob's family and his possessions are his. At this point, Laban is still the antagonist, okay? He is no friend to Jacob at this point. And I, I believe, we, as, we noted in the, as we saw in the previous section, previous scene, the Lord gave Laban a dream. He said, do not say nothing good or bad about Jacob. I, I truly believe that God is being kind for the sake of Jacob and his family to Laban because the covenant struck with Abraham was anyone that blesses you will be blessed. Anyone that curses you will be cursed. Had Laban spoke evil of Jacob in that moment, he would be cursed. He would be because the promises of God are true. His word is true. And that covenant struck with Abraham has extended to Isaac and it is now extended to Jacob. And so the Lord intervenes. The Lord intervenes, but why? But why? Well, they struck a covenant, Laban and Jacob, and they call that place Galid and Mizpah. Again, paralleling slightly the, the story with both Abraham and Abimelech with the wells and Isaac and Abimelech with the wells, okay? That's why I also think that, that narrative about the wives, it's similar language, because we're seeing, again, some of the issues of the sins of the fathers continue to the sons. And yet, we also see God's faithfulness all the while. These parallels of faithfulness continue down the line as testimony to God's, God's goodness and his covenant-keeping strength. Laban swears by the God of Abraham, but he also swears by the God of his fathers, right? The God of Nahor, Abraham's brother, and their father, for all intents and purposes, a pagan. And what does Isaac do? He strikes the covenant, and he swears by the true God, the fear of Isaac. The fear of Isaac. Twice we see that title, and it only occurs in this chapter in the entire Bible. Because Isaac, again, is recognizing who the Lord really is. And he says, you can keep those gods, but this is the God that I will strike this promise with, that I will strike this covenant with. 
Laban kisses and blesses his family, and guess what? He returns home. He returns home. Jacob trusted that God is God and that the Lord would keep his word. The Lord intervened. Think about this. The Lord intervened. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob moved on behalf of Jacob, keeping his promises. Had he not intervened, first in the dream and then in the making of peace through, through this covenant, Laban would still be an enemy of Jacob and would have ultimately been, been cursed. But for the sake of Jacob, think about this. For the sake of Jacob, Laban was transformed from an object of cursing to an object of blessing. For the sake of Jacob, Laban has no part in the inheritance. He has no part in the covenant promises. And yet, for the sake of his children, the Lord softens Laban's heart. And he warns him in that dream. It could have ended terribly for Laban. But yet, for the sake of Jacob, he goes from being an object of cursing to an object of blessing. Only God does those sort of things. Only God takes a man who has abused us, who has profited it off our backs, who is an enemy in disguise and turns it into an opportunity for blessing. Because God keeps his promises. It has nothing to do with Laban and everything to do with the character and the faithfulness of God Almighty. And so now we're going to get into a time of... Uh, a conclusion here, but it's going to be an application time, so this is going to be extended. There's three points we need to make from each of these scenes, okay? And this is where our application lies. Because while this is a historic narrative, it's, it's easy to remove ourselves from the situation and think, well, this is what God did in history at a point in time. And you can go one step further and say, well, thankfully it was the Lord's faithfulness through history that eventually leads us to the Christ who is our righteousness, and that is true, and that's a proper reading of the text, but there's more to be learned here, and there's more to be seen, because God is revealing his heart through his word right now, and he's revealing the standard of his righteousness and how his people ought to respond to him. And so the first point, the first point of application is this. The Lord is a covenant-keeping God. He continually reveals more of himself and pours out more grace despite the sins of his people. This was mentioned earlier. We see greater covenant blessings and mercies as we move through the drama. And we see greater covenant benefits realized as the patriarchs and their families trust and obey. We also see greater sin. With greater revelation of who the Lord is and what his law is, comes greater culpability we are more responsible for what we know Paul says as much as this in Philippians 3 that whatever we've come to know that we have to live up to and so actively now we're becoming more guilty before God because we know more about who he is now and yet there's grace all the while but we are culpable for our transgressions because we know more we know more, but his, his revelation is good. This progression of his revelation is always good, and it's always intended to reaffirm and establish his covenants towards us because he's not changing. He's not changing. We're fickle, but the Lord doesn't change, 
And all the while, he's faithful to himself. And in his faithfulness to himself, he's faithful to us. Paul writes, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is ours in Christ. The offspring that was promised to Abraham is Christ Jesus. Paul makes this point in Galatians. He says it's not offsprings, but offspring. There's one seed. And it's through that seed, that son, that the covenant is fulfilled. That all the earth is blessed because they're blessed with true knowledge of the Godhead in Christ and a true offer of salvation. That's the blessing. And thus, the people of God populate the earth and become and fill the nations as those who no longer belong to themselves but belong to God in Christ. And so, God is a covenant-keeping God. And this covenant is ours in Christ. There's no other way. We are truly children of Abraham through faith if we trust that Jesus is the Messiah of God. That's what Romans 4 is getting at. Abraham grabbed hold of a specific promise, the promise that he would provide a substitute for Isaac. Abraham believed that, walking up that mount. And we too have that same faith if we believe that the Lord did provide a substitute for us and his name is Jesus. And not only that, but this same man, Jesus the Christ, he not only died, but he also raised Because Abraham's faith was bound in the fact that if Isaac did die, the Lord would raise him. And we know for a fact that Jesus did die, but not only did he die, he was raised. And so therefore, we become children of faith, children of Abraham, if we take hold of that promise. Second point, we must fear the Lord, who is the fear of Isaac. The word of God to Isaac, fear not, is not a command to not fear God. That'd be illogical and really unfathomable considering everything going on in the story. Rather, the command to fear not is placed as a command to assure us that there is no need to fear anyone, anything, or any situation outside of Him because He is with us, right? Fear not, for I am with you. The most awful being in the universe, the one to whom all things submit and are kept in control by, says, I'm with you. And I will not leave you until I've accomplished everything I've promised. That, that's a mystery. The one, the one who gives and takes away, the one who kills and makes alive, says, I'm with you. I'm with you. The most glorious, holy, awesome, and dreadful being who is, both, who is outside both time and space is for us because he is a covenant-keeping God. Listen to this. Jesus says this is in Matthew 10. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do you see the parallel with Jacob? Just a little bit. He heard from the Lord in secret and he 
proclaimed to his wives and to Laban what the Lord had told him. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Heavy words from Jesus. It's worth noting that Jesus speaks more about hell than heaven. He warns more about hell than he does make promises about heaven. Because it's meant to stir a reality, to awaken us to the reality that death is not the end. And he says all the while, don't fear anyone who can kill the body, but fear him who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. We see, we see the faith of the apostles in the book of Acts who rightly feared God, and because they feared God, they did not fear man. In Acts 5, they say, uh, it's written by Luke, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, that is the name of Jesus, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So second, second point of application, we must fear the Lord, who is the fear of Isaac. And because we must fear him, because he's a covenant-keeping God, and because we ought to fear him, we therefore submit all of life to the Lord. If it's not obvious already, I believe it's safe to say that God is concerned with all matters of life. We've seen this as we've been working our way through Genesis. And so starting with Abraham and moving onward, we easily see that the Lord is, that God is Lord over our worship, our fear and our fears, our obedience, the land of our habitation, our spouses, our children, our distant relatives, our vocation, our wealth, our possessions, our comings, our goings, he is worthy to rule and reign over all of life. And speaking to Greeks, Paul said this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his, his offspring. Think about this. Where you're at is no accident. 
where you live, where you work, is no accident. The same God who told Abraham, arise from your kinsmen and go to the land that I will show you, is the same God who has placed you where you are or who will place you where you're going to go. It's the same God. The same God who gave you a vocation to provide and to have a, a means of worship is the same God who might say, quit your job, work for less money, because I, I have a plan for you. I have a plan for you. Again, in Ephesians, Paul says, look, this is the mystery that God has revealed himself through the church, and this mystery of Christ is that God is for the Gentiles. And so he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Do you hear that? That your family unit, your household is no accident. That God purposed it that way. He has purposed it that way from the beginning because he has a plan to magnify his name if you surrender, if you feel out for him. Seek him. And he has purposed husbands, wives, children. He's purposed all of you within his plan. He did all that, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. All the things in life are for Christ. All of them. Every thing. Every thing. So don't lose sight of that. It's so easy for us to do the nine to five or for those of you that um, are, are stay-at-home moms rightfully working the harvest of the home. It, I, I mean, I just know from my experience with my family that it's not easy. It's not easy. It can feel like drudgery. That children are hard to shepherd or the job that you work seems like it's taxing so much of your life and your energy and your joy and yet all those things the Lord has intended for your good he is not blind to these things he's not absent-minded he's not wrong he's not wrong and so here are the ending questions if you want to come on up Eric here are the ending questions I have for us This is for us, for, for, for us who belong to God in Christ. Will you let God be God when he tells you to share the gospel with your God-hating, hostile neighbor? Will you let God be God when you just feel tired of living in this town and yet he tells you to stay because he's not done with you yet? Will you let God be God when he tells you to continue to suffer at a job you hate or he tells you to quit your job and move on to another season of life? Will you let God be God when he takes away one that you love and proves himself to be the one who gives and takes away, the one who kills and makes alive? Will you let God be God when he tells you to pack all your belongings and move to another country so that other people might hear the name of Christ and not burn in hell for all of eternity? Will we be a people 
who let the Lord be Lord? Or or will we continue to try to be our own gods, captaining our own ships until we shipwreck completely? Abraham Kuyper once wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. May we trust and obey the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob today. Let's pray. Father, you are the great sovereign. You fulfill the purpose of your will. And you fulfill your purposes towards us. You are Lord over our comings and our goings, over all things. Father, you are... You are not silent, but you have spoken to us through your word. And for those of us that know you through Christ, we have your spirit. I pray that we would be obedient in all things, that we would trust you in all things, that we would each fulfill the role that you've given us, that men would be men, husbands, husbands, Women, women, wives, wives, children, children, that we would all live faithfully in the sphere of life that you have sovereignly ordained us to be in. Lord, would we bank on your grace, your mercy, and your faithfulness because you are a covenant-keeping God and we trust you today. Father, would you take all of us and use us for your purposes. We pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Start with us, Father, please. Forgive us for for laziness, for slothfulness, for blindness to the things that you want to do. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and minds that we might seek you in all things and run joyfully towards you. Father, you are good and we trust you. It's in your name I pray and ask all this.